Chapter Seventeen of the Time Traders by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Time Traders, Chapter Seventeen. The preparations for Foscar's funeral went on through the night. A wooden structure made up of tied faggots dragged in from the woodland grew taller beyond the big tribal camp. The constant crooning wail of the women in the tents produced a minor murmur of sound, enough to drive a man to the edge of madness. Ross had been left under guard where he could watch it all, a refinement of torture which he would earlier have believed too subtle for Enar. Though the older men carried minor commands among the horsemen, because Enar was the closest of blood-kin among the adult males, he was in charge of the coming ceremony. The pick of the horse-herd, a roan stallion, was brought in to be picketed near Ross as sacrifice number two, and two of the hounds were in turn leashed close by. Foscar, his best weapons to hand, and a red cloak lapped about him, lay waiting on a bier. Nearby squatted the tribal wizard, shaking his thunder-rattle and chanting in a voice which approached a shriek. This wild activity might have been a scene lifted directly from some tape stored at Project Base. It was very difficult for Ross to remember that this was reality, that he was to be one of the main actors in the coming event, with no timely aid from Operation Retrograde to snatch him to safety. Sometime during that nightmare he slept, his weariness of body overcoming him. He awoke, dazed, to find a hand clutching his mop of hair, pulling his head up. "'You sleep. You do not fear Foscar's dog one?' Groggily, Ross blinked up. "'Fear? Sure he was afraid. Fear,' he realized with a clear thrust of consciousness such as he had seldom experienced before, had always stalked beside him, slept in his bed. But he had never surrendered to it, and he would not now, if he could help it. "'I do not fear!' He threw that creed into Enar's face in one hot boast. He would not fear. "'We shall see if you speak so loudly when the fire bites you,' the other spat, yet in that oath there was a reluctant recognition of Ross's courage. "'When the fire bites!' that sang in Ross's head there was something else, if he could only remember. Up to that moment he had kept a poor little shadow of hope. It is always impossible, he was conscious again with that strange clarity of mind, for a man to face his own death honestly. A man always continues to believe to the last moment of his life that something will intervene to save him. The men led the horse to the mound of faggots which was now crowned with Fosker's beer. The stallion went quietly until a tall tribesman struck true with an axe, and the animal fell. The hounds were also killed and laid at their dead master's feet. But Ross was not to fare so easily. The wizard danced about him, a hideous figure in a beast mask, a curled fringe of dried snakeskin swaying from his belt. Shaking his rattle, he squawked like an angry cat as they pulled Ross to the stacked wood. Fire. There was something about fire, 
if he could only remember. Ross stumbled and nearly fell across one leg of the dead horse they were propping into place. Then he remembered that tongue of flame in the meadow grass, which had burned the horse but not the rider. His hands and his head would have no protection, but the rest of his body was covered with the flame-resistant fabric of the alien suit. Could he do it? There was such a slight chance, and they were already pushing him onto that mound, his hands tied. Enar stooped and bound his ankles, securing him to the brush. So fastened they left him. The tribe ringed around the pyre at a safe distance, Enar and five other men approaching from different directions, torches aflame. Ross watched those blazing knots thrust into the brush and heard the crackle of the fire. His eyes, hard and measuring, studied the flash of flame from dried brush to seasoned wood. A tongue of yellow-red flame licked up at him. Ross hardly dared to breathe as it wreathed about his foot, his hide fetters smoldering. The insulation of the suit did not cut all the heat, but it allowed him to stay put for the few seconds he needed to make his escape spectacular. The flame had eaten through his foot-bonds, and yet the burning sensation on his feet and legs was no greater than it would have been from the direct rays of a bright summer sun. Ross moistened his lips with his tongue. The impact of heat on his hands and his face was different. He leaned down, held his wrist to the flame, taking in stoical silence the burns which freed him. Then, as the fire curled up so that he seemed to stand in a frame of writhing red banners, Ross leaped through that curtain, protecting his bowed head with his arms as best he could. But to the onlookers it seemed he passed unhurt through the heart of a roaring fire. He kept his footing and stood facing that part of the tribal ring directly before him. He heard a cry, perhaps of fear, and a blazing torch flew through the air and struck his hip. Although he felt the force of the blow, the burning bits of the head merely slid down his thigh and leg, leaving no mark on the smooth blue fabric. "'Ah!' Now the wizard capered before him shaking his rattle to make a deafening din. Ross struck out, slapping the sorcerer out of his path, and stooped to pick up the smoldering brand which had been thrown at him. Whirling it about his head, though every movement was torture to his scorched hands, he set it flaming once more. Holding it in front of him as a weapon, he stalked directly at the men and women before him. The torch was a poor enough defense against spears and axes, but Ross did not care. He put into his last gamble all the determination he could summon. Nor did he realize what a figure he presented to the tribesmen. A man who had crossed a curtain of fire without apparent hurt, who appeared to wash in tongues of flame without harm, and who now called upon fire in turn as a weapon, was no man but a demon. The wall of people wavered and broke. Women screamed and ran. Men shouted. But no one threw a spear or struck with an axe. Ross walked on, a man possessed, looking neither to the right or left. He was in the camp now, stalking toward the fire burning before Foscar's tent. He did not turn aside for that either, but holding the torch high, strode through the heart of the flames, 
risking further burns for the sake of ensuring his ultimate safety. The tribesmen melted away as he approached the last line of tents, with the open land beyond. The horses of the herd, which had been driven to this side to avoid the funeral pyre, were shifting nervously, the scent of burning making them uneasy. Once more Ross whirled the dying torch about his head. Recalling how the aliens had sent his horse mad, he tossed it behind him into the grass between the tents and the herd. The tinder-dry stuff caught immediately. Now if the men tried to ride after him, they would have trouble. Without hindrance, he walked across the meadow at the same even pace, never turning to look behind. His hands were two separate worlds of smarting pain, his hair and eyebrows were singed, and a finger of burn ran along the angle of his jaw. But he was free, and he did not believe that Fosgar's men would be in any haste to pursue him. Somewhere before him lay the river, the river which ran to the sea. Ross walked on in the sunny morning, while behind him black smoke raised a dark beacon to the sky. Afterward he guessed that he must have been light-headed for several days, remembering little save the pain in his hands and the fact that it was necessary to keep moving. Once he fell to his knees and buried both hands in the cool, moist earth where a thread of stream trickled from a pool. The muck seemed to draw out a little of the agony while he drank with a fever thirst. Ross seemed to move through a haze which lifted at intervals during which he noted his surroundings, was able to recall a little of what lay behind him, and to keep to the correct route. However, the gaps of time in between were forever lost to him. He stumbled along the banks of a river and fronted a bear fishing. The massive beast rose on its hind legs, growled, and Ross walked by it uncaring, unmenaced by the puzzled animal. Sometimes he slept through the dark periods which marked the nights, or he stumbled along under the moon, nursing his hands against his breast, whimpering a little when his foot slipped and the jar of that mishap ran through his body. Once he heard singing, only to realize that it was himself who sang hoarsely a melody which would be popular thousands of years later in the world through which he wavered. But always Ross knew that he must go on, using that thick stream of running water as a guide to his final goal, the sea. After a long while those spaces of mental clarity grew longer, appearing closer together. He dug small shelled things from under stones along the river and ate them avidly. Once he clubbed a rabbit and feasted. He sucked bird's eggs from a nest hidden among some reeds, just enough to keep his gaunt body going, though his gray eyes were now set in what was almost a death's head. Ross did not know just when he realized that he was again being hunted. It started with an uneasiness which differed from his previous fever-bred hallucinations. This was an inner pulling, a growing compulsion to turn and retrace his way back toward the mountains to meet something, or someone, waiting for him on the backward path. But Ross kept on, fearing sleep now and fighting it. For once he had laid down to rest and had wakened on his feet 
heading back as if that compulsion had the power to take over his body when his waking will was off guard. So he rested, but he dared not sleep, the desire constantly tearing at his will, striving to take over his weakened body and draw it back. Perhaps against all reason he believed that it was the aliens who were trying to control him. Ross did not even venture to guess why they were so determined to get him. If there were tribesmen on his trail as well, he did not know, but he was sure that this was now purely a war of wills. As the banks of the river were giving way to marshes, he had to wade through mud and water, detouring the boggy sections. Gray clouds of birds whirled and shrieked their protests at his coming, and sleek water animals paddled and poked curious heads out of the water as this two-legged thing walked mechanically through their green land. Always that pull was with him, until Ross was more aware of fighting it than of traveling. Why did they want him to return? Why did they not follow him? Or were they afraid to venture too far from where they had come through the transfer? Yet the unseen rope which was tugging at him did not grow less tenuous as he put more distance between himself and the mountain valley. Ross could understand neither their motives nor their methods, but he would continue to fight. The bog was endless. He found an island and lashed himself with his suit-belt to the single willow which grew there, knowing that he must have sleep, or he could not hope to last through the next day. Then he slept, only to waken cold, shaking, and afraid. Shoulder-deep in a pool, he was aware that in his sleep he must have opened the belt-buckle and freed himself, and only the mishap of falling into the water had brought him around to sanity. Somehow he got back to the tree, rehooked the buckle and twisted the belt around the branches so that he was sure he could not work it free until daybreak. He lapsed into a deepening doze and awoke, still safely anchored, with the morning cries of the birds. Ross considered the suit as he untangled the belt. Could the strange clothing be the tie by which the aliens held to him? If he were to strip, leaving the garment behind, would he be safe? He tried to force open the studs across his chest, but they would not yield to the slight pressure which was all his seared fingers could exert, and when he pulled at the fabric he was unable to tear it. So, still wearing the livery of the off-world men, Ross continued on his way, hardly caring where he went or how. The mud plastered on him by his frequent falls was some protection against the swarm of insect life his passing stirred into attack. However, he was able to endure a swollen face and slitted eyes, being far more conscious of the wrenching feeling within him than the misery of his body. The character of the marsh began to change once more. The river was splitting into a dozen smaller streams, shaping out fan-like. Looking down at this from one of the marsh hillocks, Ross knew a faint surge of relief. Such a place had been on the map Ash had made them memorize. He was close to the sea at last, and for the moment that was enough. A salt-sharpened wind cut at him with the force of a fist in the face. In the absence of sunlight 
the leaden clouds overhead set a winter-like gloom across the countryside. To the constant sound of bird-calls, Ross tramped heavily through small pools, beating a path through tangles of marsh-grass. He stole eggs from nests, sucking his nourishment eagerly with no dislike for the fishy flavor, and drinking from stagnant, brackish ponds. Suddenly Ross halted, at first thinking that the continuous roll of sound he heard was thunder. Yet the clouds overhead were massed no more than before, and there was no sign of lightning. Continuing on, he realized that the mysterious sound was the pounding of surf. He was near the sea. Willing his body to run, he weaved forward at a reeling trot, pitting all his energy against the incessant pull from behind. His feet skidded out of marsh mud into sand. Ahead of him were dark rocks surrounded by the white lace of spray. Ross headed straight toward that spray until he stood knee-deep in the curling, foam-edged water and felt its tug on his body almost as strong as that other tug upon his mind. He knelt, letting the salt water sting to life every cut, every burn, sputtering as it filled his mouth and nostrils, washing from him the slime of the boglands. It was cold and bitter, but it was the sea. He had made it. Ross Murdoch staggered back and sat down suddenly in the sand. Glancing about, he saw that his refuge was a rough triangle between two of the small river arms, littered with the debris of the spring floods which had grounded here after rejection by the sea. Although there was plenty of material for a fire, he had no means of kindling a flame, having lost the flint all beaker traders carried for such a purpose. This was the sea, and against all odds he had reached it. He lay back, his self-confidence restored to the point where he dared once more to consider the future. He watched the swooping flight of gulls drawing patterns under the clouds above. For the moment he wanted nothing more than to lie here and rest. But he did not surrender to this first demand of his overdriven body for long. Hungry and cold, sure that a storm was coming, he knew he had to build a fire. A fire on shore could provide him with the means of signaling the sub. Hardly knowing why, because one part of the coastline was as good as another, Ross began to walk again, threading a path in and out among the rocky outcrops. So he found it, a hollow between two such windbreaks within which was a blackened circle of small stones holding charred wood, with some empty shells piled nearby. Here was unmistakable evidence of a camp. Ross plunged forward, thrusting a hand impetuously into the black mass of the dead fire. To his astonishment he touched warmth. Hardly daring to disturb those precious bits of charcoal, he dug around them, then carefully blew into what appeared to be dead ashes. There was an answering glow. He could not have just imagined it. From a pile of wood that had been left behind, Ross snatched a small twig, poking it at the coal after he had rubbed it into a brush on the rough rock. He watched all one ache of hope. The twig caught. With his stiff fingers so clumsy, he had to be very careful, but Ross had learned patience in a hard school. 
bit by bit he fed that tiny blaze until he had a real fire. Then, leaning back against the rock, he watched it. It was now obvious that the placement of the original fire had been chosen with care, for the outcrops gave it wind shelter. They also provided a dark backdrop, partially hiding the flames on the landward side, but undoubtedly making them more visible from the sea. The sight seemed just right for a signal fire, but to what? Ross's hands shook slightly as he fed the blaze. It was only too clear why anyone would make a signal on this shore. McNeil, or perhaps both he and Ash, had survived the breakup of the raft after all. They had reached this point, abandoned no earlier than this morning, judging by the life remaining in the coals, and put up the signal. Then, just as arranged, they had been collected by the sub, by now on its way back to the hidden North American post. There was no hope of any pickup for him now. Just as he had believed them dead after he had found that rag on the sapling, so they must have thought him finished after his fall in the river. He was just a few hours too late. Ross folded his arms across his hunched knees and rested his head on them. There was no possible way he could ever reach the post or his own kind ever again. Thousands of miles lay between him and the temporary installation in this time. He was so sunk in his own complete despair that he was long unaware of finally being free of the pressure to turn back which had so long haunted him. But as he roused to feed the fire, he got to wondering. Had those who hunted him given up the chase? Since he had lost his own race with time, he did not really care. What did it matter? The pile of wood was getting low, but he decided that did not matter either. Even so, Ross got to his feet, moving over to the drifts of storm-rack to gather more. Why should he stay here by a useless beacon? But somehow he could not force himself to move on, as futile as his vigil seemed. Dragging the sun-dried, bleached limbs of long-dead trees to his half-shelter, he piled them up, working until he laughed at the barricade he had built. A siege! For the first time in days he spoke aloud. I might be ready for a siege! He pulled over another branch, added it to his pile, and kneeled down once more by the flames. There were fisher-folk to be found along this coast, and tomorrow, when he was rested, he would strike south and try to find one of their primitive villages. Traders would be coming into this territory now that the red-inspired raiders were gone. If he could contact them... But that spark of interest in the future died almost as soon as it was born. To be a beaker trader as an agent for the project was one thing. To live the role for the rest of his life was something else. Ross stood by his fire, staring out to sea for a sign he knew he would never see again as long as he lived. Then, as if a spear had struck between his shoulder-blades, he was attacked. The blow was not physical, but came instead as a tearing red pain in his head, a pressure so terrible he could not move. He knew instantly that behind him now lurked the ultimate danger. 
End of chapter 17